Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and we're on the road with the Global Listening Project, again in New York. Uh, our guests today, well, first up is Heidi Larson, co-founder of the Global Listening Project. Hey, Heidi, how are you doing? Nice to be here. It's good yeah. to see you. And our guest uh, joining us, Heidi, is someone we've wanted on the show for quite a while, Dr. Ashwin Vassan, who is the, let me get this right, the New York City Health Commissioner. Is that right? That's correct. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. So, um, Ashwin, a kickoff question for you. You became the city's health commissioner just as the uh, Omicron, first Omicron wave of COVID peaked. What on earth persuaded you to take this job at that time? I mean, that must be one of the worst possible jobs to do. It's very difficult in the midst of a global pandemic as a public health practitioner to say no when you're asked to serve. Um, And I was lucky that my predecessor, my friend Dave Chokshi, is someone who I respect. And we decided together, I was appointed in December as Omicron was just beginning. But we decided together that I would, we would overlap and work together. So uh, I stayed at City Hall for nine, ten weeks and then took over once Omicron had abated. It's very hard, as I said, to to not call, to, to be called to serve in public health when you're asked. Um, but I think all of us following the pandemic also saw that there may be an end in sight, at least an end to the worst of, worst of it, that Omicron represented a new evolution in the virus that um, said that it was spreading much faster, but also on balance, much less lethal. And it got me thinking about what could I accomplish? What could I do to leave things better off after a historic crisis? How could I lean into my um, training in public health and HIV and in infectious diseases, but also my more recent endeavors in mental health to help the city rebuild itself and to build back its morale and confidence and and um, to improve health by tackling all the other health challenges that went neglected during COVID. So you, that was really what drew me. You, you were sort of instrumental in driving um, the telehealth components of the city's response. You obviously had the vaccines in your your toolkit, uh, and of course the uh, uh, antiretrovirals, the Paxlovids. Um, did that were were you able to uh, deploy those in an effective way uh, with the community, with the city behind you, or were you? like many others across the country, sort of having to, you know, watch your, watch your back and really look at how people are understanding what the science is, what these vaccines, what these treatments might actually mean, the pluses and the minuses. We learned a lot during the pandemic, during the height of the pandemic, about how to deliver medical countermeasures, let's call them, vaccines, treatments, tests, PPE, at scale, while also responding to the very clear data that certain communities, 
particularly in New York City, communities of color, black and Latino communities were being disproportionately impacted. Cases, hospitalizations, deaths were all uh, in the Omicron wave, two to one was the black to white gap. And so the balance has always been, how do we move with speed? How do we move with effectiveness? How do we message to the entire 8.5 million people in New York City to ensure that they're getting the best information possible to make safe and healthy choices while preferentially and specifically deploying resources, disproportionately in many ways, deploying resources into communities that have been left behind and that are hardest hit. Those are hard-won lessons um, from the first waves of the pandemic where we might have been slower than we had hoped. Mm. And we learned by building up from the ground up programs like Public Health Corps, which partnered with over 100 small local community health nonprofits and deployed community health workers to be that bridge of trust, to be that bridge of engagement so that when new medical countermeasures and treatments came online, we had a foundation of trust that we could work on. You mentioned Paxlovid. Paxlovid came online in January of 2022, just as I was starting back in city mm -hmm. government. And um, we worked on in, a, in an environment of really constrained supply for an entirely new treatment, which had very little confidence in it. How could we ensure that it was as equitably distributed as possible? And what we decided was there wasn't really going to be a good way to do this with the constrained supply by leaning on any one type of pharmacy or brick and mortar. Yeah especially at a time when people were also trying to stay home right. during Omicron. Right. Yeah. So we developed an innovative partnership with an online pharmacy, delivered mm -hmm. direct to your doorstep. You could call, get tested, get evaluated for treatment. Um, you could even call based on a home test and get evaluated for treatment and have it delivered to your door within, yeah. evaluated by a doctor and delivered to your door within hours, which I think was a pretty big step forward before Paxlovid access became yeah. more widespread. Yeah. I mean, Heidi, does this, what um, Ashwin is describing, have you seen this approach in other cities, in other settings? What resonates? Well, I think that the nature of the specific interventions will vary on setting, but I think, Ashwin, what you mentioned, this foundation of trust, and, and I think what's often... Uh, Sometimes it's focused on getting the vaccine there or getting X intervention there, getting the drug there. But what you're stressing is so crucial, which is about building the relationship. And I think that was something that during COVID was uh, the places that did well invested in that relationship building as you did. And it was, you know, you can have things, access to these things, but if people don't trust and aren't familiar and that process you went through. Um, and also the fact that when you say equitably and sometimes people mix with, you know, equally, in this case, it wasn't equally. You needed to do more to be equitable. The places that needed it more should get more. And, and you, and communities pay attention to that. And when they feel like you actually care about them, it's a trust builder. 
and when you come back and when it's the drugs are there where you need them. Um, I mean, these are all hugely valuable interventions that, um, I mean, it really, I mean, you were, it was a powerful force. And it was, the other thing about it is it was more than just getting the drug there. It was a foundational thing for the next whatever. And people will remember that. Um, The world is going to remember there's life before and after COVID and how they were tw- t- how they were treated and how they were taken care of is is really going to be important moving forward to build on we've spoken about the role of the faith communities one of the things that really stood out to me in new york uh, you spoke about the black uh, and latino communities but particularly thinking about uh, um, the african american communities in the city Working with people like Reverend Al Sharpton, um, I mean, he was one of the first folks with a, a, a bunch of uh, fellow uh, pastors to get uh, to get his vaccine very publicly in Harlem. And you know, was was that opportunistic, or were you really really focused on identifying leaders like that? I think the foundation of trust is presence, mm. and presence not just in times of urgency or emergency, but presence at all times. So that's one. Two, I think shared experience and shared lived experience is crucial for trust. And then really listening and including people in decision-making and hearing what their, meaning the community, is lifting up in terms of what's most important to them. Folks like Reverend Sharpton and the hundred organizations we partnered with through Public Health Corps are exactly the kinds of organizations that are always there. Now, they might not have the resources or the technical capacity, or they certainly aren't don't have a long track record of getting big government contracts. And that was on us as right. the city to say, how can we open our doors? How can we get the dollars to you where you need capacity with data and training and um, administration? Where can we support you? But then get out of your way and let you be the voice and the face and the, the, the front end of the intervention. Whether it's encouraging people to go get tested, wear PPE, masks, go get vaccinated and later on get treated. It is government understanding where it needs to lead and where it needs to step back and let others lead. And so I think there was intention, but, and we're very proud of what we built, but two things. One is that it's not like it got out the door that way. No. And as I said, those were hard won lessons and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of lives lost, especially in those first three months of the pandemic here in New York City. Around 50% of the overall deaths from COVID in New York City happened in the first three months. Two, and I appreciate your note of optimism, Heidi, I think people are forgetting. Public Health Corps and programs like it were funded by massive federal infusions of resources. And now all of that money is gone. We're facing fiscal cliffs. And instead of having a robust national 
policy conversation around how we fund a sustainable public health infrastructure and what are the elements of that, we are talking about further cuts to the Centers for Disease Control. Yeah. We're talking about um, the attack on local public health authorities and their uh, neutering of their ability to um, control Well, I wanted, to, public I wanted health us crises. to come on to this. You've both mentioned trust and um, from very different backgrounds. You, Ashwin, is an infectious disease doc. Heidi, you as an anthropologist, asking the questions, who do people trust? How do you get information through trusted sources? And I wonder if you would reflect, both of you, a little bit on your own experiences, because you've both been very um, externally focused people. You've led conversations around trust, around information that people need to protect themselves. But in this sort of strange era of pandemics that have been also a pandemic of social media um, and misinformation, disinformation even, you've both been targeted in different ways. And I, I, I guess the question is, how does someone who is communicating public health messages, which again, have to be outwardly focused. How do you do that while maintaining a sense of yourself, a sense of your own, your own privacy? How in this era of personalities is the message more important than the person giving it? You turned to me, it's a tough one, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you get the first uh, tough one. Yeah, it's... Uh, you know, there are times where um, I think there are times where you do need face forward in a way, but there are times where you really do need to step back. And I think the distinction that Ashwin made in knowing when to step up and knowing when to step back is is not one that enough people think about um, because it's and I, I worked in UNICEF for for many years and there was this whole celebrity, you know, culture that I think right now, um, sometimes you don't want someone in the headline because it attracts. I mean, there was a whole uh, story recently with uh, Taylor Swift's partner that was promoting the Pfizer vaccine and how, you know, it, it took advantage of that highly visible platform um, and sometimes that's good, and sometimes it makes you uh, prone to attack. Um, and yeah, I I think this is where coming back to again what Ashwin was saying about partnering with local and and trusted figures. There are times when you have to hand the baton on, um, and I think it's balancing that. Uh, but it's been very tough for scientists. Mm -hmm. I mean. I mean, really, if I'm getting death threats and I'm, you know, uh, Tony Fauci's a whole other league of threats, and I'm sure you've had um, threats, it's tough. I mean, you, you um, as you mentioned earlier, in public health, you, it's sometimes it's almost too much of a kind of evangelist feeling that you want to help people. And then you feel like I'm trying to help people and they want to kill me, you know. I know you see public but, health um, departments, leaders of public health departments all over the country yeah. finding themselves under the spotlight and they never anticipated or expected it. 
Yeah. I certainly didn't. I mean, I knew what I was getting into with respect to the state of the discourse. I didn't anticipate the degree to which it would land on my doorstep, literally, uh, with people coming to my home and police details and and death threats and uh, restraining orders and all of that. Okay, but back to the issue of trust. I think trust really is built on two separate but related axes. One is community trust, and I think we talked a little bit about that. It's 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 civic. It's in, it's inclusive. It's based on credible messengers. It's it's um, right sizing the role of institutional leaders and this external facing. Uh, presence or um, simply uh, handing the baton to a different kind of mm. uh, institutional presence. You know, one of the most credible messengers in um, Harlem, obviously a historically black neighborhood in New York City, was uh, Melba, the yeah. owner of Melba's Diner, right? <laughs> the famous business owner. Yeah. Incredibly credible messenger and, and actually served on our COVID recovery task force Um uh, last year. So understanding those opportunities and really mapping them and using them and government really saying, how, how can we be helpful? How can we resource it so that we are not whatever externalities of our brand and people's sense of institutional trust with government or with any large institution, research, academic, clinical, um, that we're not getting in the way of that one. But I think Two is the access of structure uh, of, of institutional trust, mm. and and to the extent that external messengers like myself are um, the faces of institutions. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to learn, I think, in public health and public policy about communicating complexity and communicating honestly about what we know and what we don't know in a rapidly changing environment, and. Public health has a history of constraining and restraining communications until clarity is found. Yeah. And I understand the responsibility that from which that derives, that no one wants to share in, imperfect or uh, inaccurate scientific information when it's life and death. But in an emergency, when people, when the there is a vacuum of information and fear and misinformation is filling that vacuum. It's essential that public officials and and institutional leaders are communicating early, often, and honestly about this is what we know today, and it could change tomorrow. And we need to and and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. Yeah, and I, that I is a, if we don't learn that, yeah. then as a society and as a field, we will be here again. And I think that is the big lesson for the public health field, because if there was a mistake, I think that we all made at the start of the pandemic, it was feeding into this sense of, we're the experts, you can trust us. But then as the information changed, as the science evolved, we we said, and now do this. And where I live in the greater San Francisco area, um, the issue, of course, was all around uh, masking mandates in school. Um, and, you know, we weren't able to stand up as a, as a discipline, really, and say, look, we don't know all the answers. This is what we know now. It may well change. We'll come back to you. We seemed in sort of 
really in our DNA not to be able to be comfortable about a trust relationship that could be open and honest about not necessarily having all the information. Important point is that and we are making a decision today based on the best information we have yeah. today. Yeah. And that can explain why in the retrospectoscope some of these decisions look less than ideal but we made the best decisions we could at the time with the information yeah. we had and with our sense of where the information might go. And that's the part that is hard, I think, for us to internalize and communicate and also hard for the public to accept that we don't communicate it because they think these are static decisions, not dynamic mm. decisions. And right. in a changing epidemic like we ha have had, um, they're decidedly not static. And a brand new virus. I mean, <laughs> this is no one. I mean, we actually there was for more anticipation that we would have another influenza type pandemic if we had one. And and this one, I mean, not that we we did have SARS as another um, coronavirus, but that didn't go global in the same way. But it was new. So I mean, I think people. Our understanding, if you explain to them, and I think what you were saying is the importance of just being there, bringing, and sometimes I call it bringing people along with the story. See, take 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 people on the journey with you and say, we have a brand new virus. We're learning as we're going. We're going to share what we're learning as we're going and make the decisions we have to make and bear with us. We're, we're all in the same boat here. And... Um, and I think the mask thing was, I, I know, it's in multiple countries. I mean, in the UK, there was on, off, on, off. And then there was, well, they're just saying off so the healthcare providers get them first. And even if that was the decision, um, I think one of the things we've heard from in our Global Listening Project is people felt like, well, we'll do <coughs> what we need to do but help us understand why you've made that decision. You know, if you say masking and containing yourself is important, but we have limited amount of masks, we're gonna put them, you know, keep them in the hospitals first, and as they become available, it's a respiratory illness, you know, masks do have a value, but um, it was, I think this explained to us why you're making that decision mm. and we'll, we'll, I mean, not everybody, but people were pretty understanding about that. But that was one thing that came up quite a bit. We wish they would have explained why they made that rule about schools, about, you know, workplace, about, you know, you can walk the dog once a day and that's it and, or, you know, whatever the decision is. We did what we what we thought was, you know, yeah. what the data told us at the moment and what we thought was 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 best. Now, you've mentioned SARS and there was MERS, but there's one other pandemic of this era that perhaps is, you know, one of the one of the prime One Health uh, viruses that emerged, and that is HIV. All mm -hmm. three of us have had a background in HIV. And of course, New York, some would say San Francisco, of course, was the epicenter of the community response in the United States. How much of uh, 
how much could we build on that experience from HIV in uh, mounting an effective community-led response to COVID? Massive. And um, we saw it during the next unexpected visitor, yeah. MPOX. And so it was the community partnering, leading and partnering with us in government that led to a historic response. We vaccinated over 100,000 people in just a matter of weeks. And if you look at the epidemic curve, it, it bent quickly. And it was as much to do with vaccination as it was to do with community outreach and education and behavior change. That was led by the community. And we leveraged all of our partnerships and and incredible networks that we've built through sexual health programs, LGBTQ serving organizations, MSM serving organizations, all of it built upon activism and engagement and and a, and a health justice framework that comes out of the HIV movement. You mentioned health justice. One of the criticisms that was leveled at us right across the country around the management of MPOX was that we were really good at mobilizing um gay white men with health insurance. We were less good at reaching uh, communities that fell outside those uh, parameters. How did you address that in New York? I think it was incredibly difficult. We got there first. We were the first jurisdiction to start vaccinating people in June, at the end of June of last year. We did so with an extraordinarily constrained supply of of vaccine. And Sadly, we didn't see that supply really open up until later on. And that has to do with upstream issues at the federal level and supply chain and preparedness uh, around planning for this outbreak, even though we knew it was coming Mm -hmm. once we had the first cases in Montreal and in, um, I think, Boston and New York. So, you know, a lot of the best intended, the well-intended plans. Yeah. Yeah are laid to waste in the face of lack of supply. Mm. From the beginning here in New York, we had reserved appointments for zip codes that were in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Um, We had reserved doses of vaccine for community groups, community organizations and providers that predominantly serve um, black and brown communities. But I agree with the critique from the perspective of we weren't able to see it in the data because we didn't have the supply. So let's talk preparedness then on a slightly bigger issue. Um, Heidi, you and I are really interested in how cities as um, microcosms of humanity uh, build resilience. I know that's not a word we like to use anymore, but build preparedness and are ready for the next Uh, the next challenge. What interests you about the New York experience uh, potentially as something to, you know, lift out the innovation that it developed that could be um, adapted or or learned from in other settings? Well, I think some of the things that have already been mentioned, but just how things are tailored to, you can use communities in in different ways in cities and i think that i mean i know in in london i was in london at the beginning of the pandemic and it was interesting that you mentioned the um the the diner uh in in new york i mean up in harlem in 
London, it was in the Bangladeshi community, we had the highest rate of mortality. And it was restaurant owners who totally caught us off guard doing selfies with them getting vaccinated. Um, and But what I loved was the way they pitched it. It wasn't just get your jab to prevent, you know, because our community is getting the hardest hit. It was for that, but then it was also to get business back. And the role of restaurant, especially in urban areas where, you know, you live in small spaces, there is incredibly valuable social space. And a lot of these extended families, when they get together, they don't do it at home. They the, So the restaurants were a, a, like, you know, not exactly a church, but a, a gathering, a social space. So they brought in different messages that we might not have thought about in terms of why you need to get vaccinated. Um, but it, it's a bit off-piste from from your uh, um, question. But That's never stopped you in the past. So. Yes. <laughs> um, but I just, I mean, I've lived in New York uh, over the years, in fact, lived in Harlem and um even though i'm not living here now but i just i just find that there's there's an energy and a and a coherence in some of these area neighborhoods that you can really build on and i loved what you said ashwin about history and we we inherit history and that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing i mean in terms of how people historically have been treated that's something that's sometimes a bit hard to get over but we can, you know, things like what you talked about, you can renew the memory of history and there can be good historical memory um, with these kinds of efforts. Um, but, I mean, our first big listening efforts at the kickoff of the Global Listening Project were in Sao Paulo, New York, uh, Paris, Abuja, Delhi, and Bangkok, greater metropolitan areas. We thought that uh, with the resources we had, that was the way to get capture the most diversity. And it just is a different dynamic. And, and also why cities are important. You'd think, I mean, historically in international development, um, you know, we'd, it was always reaching the unreached in rural areas, when in fact, we see some of the worst vaccination rates in cities. And it, you think that in a city you have more access to things, but it's not that straightforward. You've got complex dynamics. You've got, um, you know, I, I guess the other thing is a characteristic we've seen is that it was in cities that we saw the most acute loneliness. Um, and that was another interesting thing is how people kind of support yeah. each other in these um yeah so fi final words to you ashwin um and but this i want to hear yeah. what ashwin says about loneliness no no just exactly <laughs> but, but but the point being that um cities aren't just places where in the public imagination um infectious agents can spread rapidly um, there are a range of challenges, including mental health, loneliness, but there are also opportunities that these communities have um, that make cities actually an interesting place to learn about how to build preparedness. 
you asked me why I uh, took this job at the time that I did, and in part, it was a product of, in addition to you know almost twenty years of working in public health, was some of my more recent work on mental health and really seeing the impact of social isolation on health and how it's really an unmet need and has such uh, incredible ripple effects on our physical health and and on our resilience for any shocks yeah. like emergencies or infectious diseases or otherwise. So now scale that from the individual to the society. Our digital transformation as a as a globe and as certainly in cities has atomized us and, and separated us, even though we may be in very close proximity to one another physically. And then add on top of it a infectious agent that forced us to be physically uh, separated. And it's just a recipe for for loneliness. And yeah. loneliness as a, a dynamic measure of really what's more pernicious, which is social, measurable social isolation. So I think cities hold the key to figuring out how to overcome social isolation in a densely crowded populated environment where we're actually quite physically close to one another, but how do we bring people back? I mean, we're talking about this in terms of bringing people back to the office and how do we use those meeting times, not as necessarily places where let's get the work done, but actually as intentional places to form community. And if my recent work has taught me anything, the power of community as a therapeutic intervention for mental and physical ailments alike is profound and, and an underinvested in part of our health infrastructure. So how does that relate to preparedness? It makes us healthier at baseline and more able to withstand shocks to our, our collective systems like the next pandemic, which is likely to come in our lifetimes and um, any other health emergencies, whether it be climate or otherwise. What a lovely way to bring this conversation to a close. Um, we're going to be back in New York very regularly, yes. checking in to see how this, the city and the state is responding. Uh, would love to be able to come back and check in with you and see what your progress is and any observations and recommendations you have for us. But uh, Ashwin, Absolutely. thank you so much. Um, and Heidi, of course, it is always a pleasure and yeah. great to partner with you. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for that. having me. And as a phrase I learned in global health, you are most welcome. <laughs> yes. Oh, I thought you were going to thank us for our leadership. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that too. That's another one. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for your leadership. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Ashwin. Thank you to Heidi. Thanks also to our director and producer, Erica Sperra of Newstock Media. Thanks to Chad Parisman, our New York producer. Um, our uh, project coordinator is Waisha Raphael. And a final thanks to you. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone. Bye.